Well, good morning. We can do better than that. Good morning. There we are. There we go. All right. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis 16. And as you are flipping there, uh, happy Mother's Day. Wow. It's such a great day. Uh, so happy Mother's Day to you all. And also, as you're flipping there, I do need to, I know we have a lot of guests here, but I do need to do some, uh, some family stuff, uh, some in-house stuff. So uh, as a church, we have something super, I'm super, super excited about. Uh, and I need, I need to preface by saying this, I am not going anywhere. So what I'm about to announce, I need to tell you, it's not because I'm leaving or anything like that. However, we have an awesome opportunity. Uh, the Lord has led us uh, to be able to bring Luke Johnson on staff here at Cross Point. Uh, and so I'm really, really excited about it, just the way that the direction our church is headed uh, and the things that are going on in his life and just God really just kind of brought us together. Uh, and so uh, I wanted to make sure because the couple people I've, I've told this to, they said, well, are you getting ready to leave? By no means. That's not, what, that's not what's happening uh, at, at all. Uh, so Luke is a little different because Luke isn't, if you know Luke, Luke isn't a support role type pastor. So what I mean by that, within the church you have, you know, you have your pastor, uh, but definitely in the United States you have a pastor, and then you have a youth pastor, worship pastor, and these supportive roles. That's what I mean by supportive roles. Well, when you begin to look in the Bible, and this is what I talked about a couple months ago, uh, when we're going in the next year to two years beginning to look at our church leadership and how we function what you see in a lot of times throughout the New Testament is this plurality of leadership that is not a one-man show, per se. And so I know when hiring Luke, we're not hiring a support role, we're hiring another guy who has a call in his life to pastor a church. Uh, and so, uh, so that Luke's kind of the first piece to that puzzle for us as a church moving forward, bringing in other guys who have that specific call to be able to uh, pastor a church. The next step would be raise up men from within our church uh, who has that same call on their life as well. So Luke's the first piece to the puzzle of that. His official title will be equipping pastor, uh, and but he will function specifically as a, like a co-pastor. He will be another branch, another arm of Justin, if you will, just with a different look and sound. And so he will he will aid in teaching and overall vision casting of the church. A couple weeks ago, I may mention of the series that we're about to start next week. Uh, and, and then what we're going to teach on in the summer, Luke and I have already been meeting on that for the past four or five weeks, talking about what our series are going to look like. Uh, and so anyway, I'm a super, super excited about it. But the reason I want to tell you, obviously, I want to bring you in. It is a part-time role. It's not, it's not coming on full-time. Uh, Luke, uh, has since I guess he was 17 or 18, he's made money by being an itinerant preaching. That's kind of been his main source of income. We're not asking him to stop doing that. Uh, but we're going to bring him on part-time, give him a home base uh, that we are, we're sending him out when he goes to preach, when he goes to India and things like that. And so anyway, we're super excited about, about that. So with that being said, tomorrow night, I know it's last minute, that kind of a deal. We want to have a family meeting or a member meeting, or if you, even if you haven't officially joined Crosspoint, but you call Crosspoint home, we would invite you to come at 6. We'll try to answer any questions. If you don't know Luke, Luke get to hear from Luke. Just a little short little deal of who he is and how, he, how he's ended up here. Answer some questions and anything like that. And so if you don't, if you're good, you don't, you don't have to come to that. I just want to make that available uh, to you. But anyway, Mother's Day, we're not here to talk about Luke. We're here to talk about 
moms. Mother's Day, it's such a great day, but to be honest, it is a day that is mixed with so many emotions, right? Uh, today, when, when I woke up, my, my day thought, I thought about, obviously, my wife and have I done, have I been a good husband? Does she feel like she's a, an honored mom? And I get the anticipation and the excitement to see her mother kids and, and things like that. But also when I wake up this morning, I think about my mom who isn't here, right? She's been, uh, she passed in 2001 when I was 14. So now 20 years since my mom ha- has been here. And so I know that these days are mixed with those emotions. For some, it's, it's excitement. For some, it's sadness. But they just kind of intermingle. And I know today is a day filled with so many emotions and so many things. There's joy, there's bliss, there's blessing, there's loss, there's pain, there's suffering, there's uncertainty. Then on, on top of that, I know I'm not a mom, but I've got to watch a lady be a mom. But the, the pressure to be perfect, the pressure to make sure everything is in line, the pressure that moms that you, that we, that you put, I can't say we because I'm not a we here, but the pressure that you, that you, that you put on yourself, right? To have the perfect family with no dysfunction. I think social media has aided into that, definitely with the Instagram and Facebook stories that we can post all the highlight reels and nobody gets to see behind the scenes what happened as, as, as families. And definitely moms, what we do is we begin to, to really judge our uh, behind the scenes to everybody else's highlight reels. And go, <laughs> my life isn't peachy perfect like that. And I, I may be missing the mark. Have you ever noticed this? Have you ever noticed how hard it is to find that perfect family in the Bible that has no dysfunction? Go, go ahead and look. Go ahead and read it. Go ahead and go try it from starting in Genesis. Go all the way through. See if you can find a perfect family that has it all together, that the kids are always submissive and uh, the, the husband's always, you know, hey, why, I see you, babe. And the wife's always got everything together. Just, just look for it. It's easier to find families with a lot of sin and dysfunction than families that fit the mold of perfect. For example, this is going to be lengthy, but I wrote, I wrote everything down this morning that I could think of. I probably missed some. Here you go. The first recorded husband and wife, they horrendously disobeyed God. Their firstborn mur- murders his brother, who we'll talk about this morning. Sarah's grief over infertility moves her to give her servant Hagar to Abraham to get his concubine to bear a child. And when it happens, Sarah then abuses the concubine to, uh, and begins to be jealous and we see the situation unfold. Lot reluctant to leave sexual, a sexually perverse Sodom, his home, to be, he had to be dragged out uh, by angels. And then weeks later, his daughters seduce him into a drunken incest. Isaac and Rebekah play favorites for their twin boys, while, whose sibling rivalry becomes one of the worst in history. Esau has no discernment. He sells his birthright for soup, grieves his parents by marrying a Canaanite woman, and nurses a 20-year-old murderous grudge against his, his conniving young brother. Jacob, the conniver, manipulates and deceives his brother out of his birthright and blessing. Uncle Laban deceives nephew Jacob by somehow smuggling Leah into Jacob's, uh, in as Jacob's bride instead of Rachel. Through this results in Jacob marrying his sisters. A horrible situation. Him marrying sisters. Could you imagine that? Uh, this birth, uh, this births another nasty sibling rivalry where the sisters' competition for children, including giving their servants to Jacob as concubines, produced 12 patriarchs of Israel. Jacob's daughter, Dinah, is raped by a pagan, Shechem, who then wants to marry, wants to marry her. Simeon and Levi respond on massacring all the men of Shechem's town. 
Jacob's oldest brother, Reuben, can't resist his incestuous desires and sleep with, sleeps with one of his father's concubines, the mother of some of his brothers. Ten of Jacob's sons contemplate killing a brother, yet they, instead they sell him into slavery, and then they lie about it to their father for 22 years until the Joseph exposes it. Judah, as a widower, frequented prostitutes, and they, this occurred frequently enough that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who, uh, had him sorry, whom he had dishonored, knew that if she disguised himself, then he would want to be with her as well. And that's just the beginning. Time would fail me to talk about Aaron's sons, uh, Nadab and Abihu, and Gideon's murderous son, Abimelech, Samson's unnazarite uh, immorality, Eli's worthless sons, Samuel's worthless sons, David's assorted uh, family, wise Solomon, who unwisely married a thousand women, turned from God, and we see it go on and on. Why is the Bible loud on sinfully dysfunctional families and quiet on the perfect families? Because there's no such thing as a perfect family. Humanity isn't perfect. We are alienated from God and each other. So put selfish sinners together in a home, sharing possessions in the most intimate aspects of life, having different personalities and interests, and a uh, distribution of power, abilities, and opportunities, and you have a recipe for dysfunction. But there's a bigger purpose at the work in this dysfunction. The Bible's main theme is God's gracious plan to redeem needy sinners. The perfect family isn't what we shoot for. But God's plan is and what is needed most in our families is to be a place of grace, a place for the gospel to be understood and applied. And when this happens, the messes become mercies. So here's my point, then I'm going to jump into the text. I'm sorry, I'm having to read all this because I said I wrote all this like this. Here's my point this morning. If your family isn't the epitome of perfection, then take heart. God specializes in redeeming messes. He functions best in the dysfunction. See your, your mess as an opportunity for God's grace to become visible to your loved ones and pray hard that God will make that happen. Now, Genesis chapter 16. I want to talk about a lady, a mother who we don't talk about a lot. A mother who uh, usually when we do talk about her, it's in a negative sense. A lady named Hagar. This lady has been a, is a lady who had been mistreated by her mistress. She did something that she didn't want to do, but being that she was a servant, she had to do it anyway. And after that, after she did what her mistress wanted her to do, uh, her mistress becomes angry at her and begins to treat her bad. We see this in the first 13 verses of Genesis 16. And so she found herself fleeing from her home. She found herself alone and defenseless without shelter or sustenance and pregnant. She felt scared, lonely, and unloved. She probably wondered in her despair if anyone cared about her or what was happening to her unborn child. This is the story of Hagar. Here's Hagar who in Genesis 16, we look at verse 1, says, now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. Abraham is, who, is the man who God calls out to be the father of the nation, if you will, father of Israel, father of the Jews. And what we'll eventually see is that they were older in age and they haven't had kids, uh, but God eventually will promise that through them that there will be one born. Uh, and so Sarah and her impatience and her looking at her own life says, I haven't had a kid yet. So she devises a plan. 
there's a concubine, or, a, or a, sorry, a servant, not a concubine, a servant named Hagar. And she, so uh, Sarah says, hey, Abraham, won't you sleep with Hagar? And therefore, there will be a child. So Hagar has to do it. Her mistress wants her to do. And then after she conceives of a child, then Sarah gets jealous. And look at verse 5. And Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. And I gave, you, and, and I gave my servant to you to your embrace, when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abraham said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, her being Hagar, and she fled from her. Verse 7, Then the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, a servant of, servant of Sarah, Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Then the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered uh, for multitude. And the angel said of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. You shall be, he shall be a, be a wild donkey of a man, and his, head, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. So this is like, it started encouraging. Then she's like, the angel's like, oh yeah, by the way, nobody's going to like him. He's always going to be at war. Uh, you want to talk about dysfunction, it is believed that, uh, that Islam came through the lineage of Ishmael. And so you talk about family dysfunction starting a craziness, right? So this one decision uh, by Sarah to do this, now here we are in 2021, right? And we see the, 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 what the angel talking about, well, everyone will be against him. But anyway, he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. But look at verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. So we, when we pick up the story with Hagar, she is someone who is lonely and fearful and feeling unloved and unwanted. And I would ask you, can you relate to her? Probably not her situation. I would, I would, I would, beg, to, I would bet on her that you cannot say, yeah, I, I get her situation. I've been there before. However, with her emotions and her feelings, I would say that many of you, moms and people who are not moms, even dudes, we, we, I know we we have feelings, right? We don't like to show it, but we have feelings. There are times when we feel we have fear and loneliness and feeling unloved and unwanted or unseen. Maybe your husband hasn't noticed, or maybe your kids are crazy and they're unthankful. Maybe you've been hurt or betrayed. Maybe you've asked yourself, does anyone see me or love me or care for me? Does anyone know what I'm going through right now? The, the war in my mind and in my heart. And maybe you've even asked the question, God, do you see what I'm going through? And do you know how bad it is? According to the story of Hagar, I will say, yes, he does. Yes, he does. Four things this morning, and I know Y'all, we are ready to get out of here. If you're taking notes, number one, this is what I want you to know this morning, according to the story of Hagar. Number one is that God sees you. Mom, God sees you. 
You who are walking through a hardship right now, God sees you. Hagar said, I, he is the God who has seen me. And for sometimes, I know, I definitely, I've been there before. Somebody needs to be told this morning because life has, thrown you, has, has done something. It has, it has hurt you. It has brought you down. And you feel like nobody can see you. And just by me telling you this morning, hey, God sees you. That's all you need to hear to keep going to the next day. Listen to me. I want you to know, according to Hagar, she thought nobody saw her. She thought nobody, nobody loved her. Nobody even would have paid attention to her. And here she understands that that God sees her. So this morning, mom, God sees you. Have you ever wondered, out of all the billions of people in this world, does God even know that you exist? Man, scripture tells us that he even knows the number of hairs on your head. For me, it ain't, he didn't get his work cut out. <laughs> Matthew 10, 30 says, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Consider that your worth is more than many sparrows of the sky. And Luke chapter 12, verse 7 says, Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you, are more val- you have more value than many sparrows. The God who sees you, he took interest in forming you. In Psalm 139, it says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Knowing, listen, the God who sees you keeps record of your tossing at night. What that means is the things that keep you up at night, our God, the God who sees, takes record of those things. And Psalm 56, 8 says, you have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in a bottle and they are in your book. I don't know what book this is. There's books that, that we understand, the Lamb's Book of Life and books of works. Like we know these books, but somewhere there's a book that the God who sees keeps record of our tossings. He keeps record record of our tears. Listen to me. I need somebody to know this morning that God sees you. Not only does he see you, he knows you. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Number two, not only does he see you, but he knows your name. So Justin, where does this come from? If you look at, obviously Moses, the writer of this, he introduces us to Hagar. But when both Abraham and Sarah talk about Hagar, they never use her name. They just refer to her as servant. Look at verse two, it says, and Sarah said to Abraham, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go to my servant. And verse five, we see servant again. Verse uh, six, we see servant. We dealt harshly with her. She had no value in their eyes. To Abraham and Sarah, she was only a serving, nothing more than a slave. How demoralizing that must have been for Hagar. But look at Genesis 16, 8. The very first word that God says to her is what? Her name. Hagar. And how beautiful. He's a God who sees, but he's a God who knew her. He says, Hagar, no one else seemed to show Hagar any decency, but God did. Up to this point, we don't even know if Hagar knew God. Oh, but God knew her. He knew her name. And listen to me, I want to remind you this morning, child of God, that God knows your name. He sees you and he knows your name. You are 
his child. Scripture tells us that he knows his sheep. Isaiah says that your name is engraved in his hand. It means it's cut and it's carved. It's into God's palm. Palm, it's implying permanence and never being erased. We read that in Isaiah 49. Listen to me. Scripture says that by faith in Jesus, that your name is written into the Lamb's book of life. That is eternal. Listen to me. This God, I want to remind you this morning, God sees you and he knows your name. Number three, God sees your situation. God saw Hagar's situation. Not only did he see everything that was going on, not only did he know her name, but he actually saw her specific situation. God is not blind to your plot. Your situation hasn't taken him by surprise, although it may have you. Scripture teaches us that God is omniscient, which means he knows all things. He sees exactly what is going on with you right now. Every second of the day, good or bad, our whole life is before his eyes. Always, nothing escapes his divine notice. Read this quote, I couldn't find who it was from. It says, but Jesus knows fully. He knows every nook and cranny of us. He knows us better than we know ourselves He also knows suffering on an intense personal level, and he meets us in our downcast state and pours out grace upon us. This morning, I want to remind all of us that God sees you, that God knows your name, and that he sees your situation. Hagar thought, I'm all alone in this. Nobody sees me. Nobody notices me. But we understand that God saw her. Number four. And I'm going to wrap up with this one. Y'all may not believe it, but I am. I'm, we're, we're landing the plane, y'all. <clears throat> now, sometimes it takes a while to get all the way down, but I'm, I'm on the descent now. Here we go. Number four, God sees your need. Not just sees you, not just knows your name, not just sees your situation, but he sees your need. Need. Notice this, that, that, that Hagar had escaped. She had fled, but it was God who came to her. She didn't go seeking for God, but God came to her. He sought her out and arrived at the moment of her greatest need. At that moment, it was to be reassured that she was seen and loved and not forgotten, that she and her unborn child would be cared for. In Psalm 147, it says, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Deuteronomy 31, we read, do not fear or be in dread of them for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. In Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 16, says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize uh, with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Flip over to Genesis chapter one. I wish that Hagar's story was always easy after that point. God has seen her. Everything's good. But that enmity that he talked about between people, it started with it started with Sarah. It wasn't that one day that people were going to stop start disliking Ishmael from the from the moment it happened, from the moment uh, she she conceived to the moment that he was born. There was this 
this frustration, this tension, if you will. And so after Isaac is born and is weaned and, and Ishmael's there, we read that it comes to a point that Sarah wants Hagar and Ishmael gone. Sarah says, I don't want them here anymore. And so I talk about dysfunction. You know who's always silent in all this? The dudes. They never stand up and put their foot down. Like, anyway, Father's Day is coming, guys, and I got some stuff loaded in my pocket, by the way. <clears throat> so anyway, we pick up in verse 14. It says, So Abraham rose early in the morning. He took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. So he just gave her water and bread to eat and just said, be on your way. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness. Verse 15, when the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. What happened is, is the provisions that Abraham had given them had run out. And she thought at that moment that the child would surely die. So much so that she puts him under a bush and it says that she went a distance. It says a bow's shot length away because she did not want to see this kid die. Verse 16, then she went away and sat down opposite a good way off by the distance of a bow shot and said, let me not look at the death of the child. And as she said, let's check this out. And as she said opposite of him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And check this out. And God heard the voice of the boy and the angel called to Hagar from heaven and said, what troubles you, Hagar? What troubles you? Check out this. Fear not, for God has heard the up. Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Check out verse 19. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. This is the same Hagar of chapter 16 who says, this is the God who sees. Now she finds herself some years later, five chapters later for us, and pretty much in the same setup, and maybe her mind has, wasn't thinking about the God who sees. And God does something for her. God opens her eyes to see that he sees. Did you catch that? That Maybe she had lost in her mind that I'm all alone, God's not seeing me. And that's what life does, right? Like we know God is the, we know that God is the God who sees, right? Every one of us, we know he sees everything. He, he sees our situations, he sees our needs. But oftentimes life is so, it's life that our eyes aren't seeing that he's seeing. Our lives, our eyes aren't seeing and remembering that he sees me and he knows my name and he'll provide every need that he, he'll fight my battles that he's, he's equipped me to do the job that he's called me to, but life blinds us all the time. So this morning, I wanted to remind you that he sees you, he knows your name, he sees your situation and he sees your need. But this is my prayer is that he will open your eyes to see that his eyes are open on you. That's the prayer this morning. Oh, mom. My prayer is that God opens your eyes to see that his eyes are always on you. Dad, my prayer is, is that God opens your eyes so that you can see his, he's the God who sees. 
no matter what situation you find yourself in. I want to encourage you this morning, God. God sees you. He knows you. He sees your situation and your need. Somebody needs to be told that this morning. But greater than all of that, let's go back to the dysfunction. Why are we dysfunctional? Because we're sinful, alienated people from God. And what we learn from the Bible and looking through human history is that apart from God doing a work in our life, we will always operate in our dysfunction. We'll always be the most selfish people in the world. We will seek after our own things. That's just the story of humanity. Scripture says that we're, we're dead in our sin and that we're, we're blind to the things of God. Scripture says that no one would call Jesus Lord apart from the Holy Spirit doing a work in that person's lives. And so here's my prayer this morning. Maybe somebody in here this morning, this whole Christianity thing, this God thing means nothing to you. Here's what I pray happens this morning is that God will open your eyes to trust in Jesus, to place your faith in him. God's eyes are open. He sees you, knows you, sees your situation, sees your need, and may he open our eyes to see that his eyes are on us. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the story of Hagar who we just kind of breeze through and from her story, God, that we can, many of us can relate. I know moms can relate of feeling unnoticed, unloved, unable. God, I can imagine the desperation of Hagar in Genesis 21 of how am I going to do this? How am I going to take care of this kid? How am I going to provide for him? So may not be able to understand her situation, but God, I know moms feel the same pressures. So may you open their eyes to see your eyes. We're on them. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.